Our scripture today is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. And this is Moses speaking. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are to pass through the territories of your territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you are going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Elath and Ezion Geber. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they were also counted as Rephim, but the Moabites called them Emim. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now rise and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered, and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook, the brook Zered was 38 years, until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp, as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them, to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So, as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the, brook, the border of Moab at Ar, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. And it is also counted as a land of Rephium. Rephium formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zemzumim, a people great and mighty and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau who live in Seir. And when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to, that, to this day. As for the Avim, who lived in villages as far as Geza, the Kaphtorim, who came from Kaphtor, destroyed them and settled in their place. I just told Bob he did a fine job reading that. Thank you, brother. 
It's my uh, way of using delegation to let others wrestle with all the names in God's word. No, I am, I am thankful. The Lord tells us to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. It's not a setup. It's not a filler. It's not a thing we do to get on with the preaching of God's Word. Both the reading of God's Word and the preaching of God's Word are critical for the life of God's church. If I haven't met you, I'm Matthew, and I am honored to be preaching in our series from Deuteronomy called Ruled by a Gracious God. Lord, we ask for your help now. We are thankful that you speak to us through every part of your word. And I pray that as you use a passage that I can imagine, even hearing this morning, um, many of us may have thought, okay, what in the world is in here that's remotely relevant for me? Lord, we pray. Open our eyes. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. You know, Father, how often we come to your word with all of our felt needs moving from our life to Scripture. Or we also want to have the humility as a congregation to start with Scripture to start with what you have seen fit to declare and reveal and then say, God, all-wise Father, take that and bring it to bear on my life. Do that today, I pray. Amen. I don't know how much you know about the Babylonian Empire, it, it reached the peak of its power under a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar II, or just Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible, especially the book of Daniel. Um, he ruled over all of Mesopotamia, more or less, from the, the Mediterranean Sea on the west to the Persian Gulf on the east. He was a feared general and a consummate builder who created the largest city on earth at the time. So Babylon was a, a real architectural masterpiece, if you would. It, it had all kinds of buildings and temples and bridges and, and even one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens. And I, I learned this week that the city walls going around the entire place, again, the largest city, known city on earth at the time, the city walls going around it were so wide that you could drive eight horses on the top of them side by side. It was a glorious place, big place. But this King Nebuchadnezzar had a fatal weakness. He failed to acknowledge that his dominion was a gift from God. And in Daniel 4.30, he cries out from the roof of his palace, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And the prophet Daniel, who served in that king's court and may have even been with him in that moment, writes in the very next verse, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. 
the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You don't have to be a history lover to know that the world has seen some really big empires. Uh, the Romans, the, the Mongols, the Ottomans, or the British, and, and Babylon ranks with the best of them. But, but what is scripture? What does the word of God assert, claim, declare in response to every glimpse of human authority and power at its greatest. The Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will. Isaiah 40, 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants, us included, America included, are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely is their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. The most high God rules the kingdom of men. And that's, that's exactly what the original recipients of the book of Deuteronomy needed to know. Not just, oh yeah, file that away for some time in the future. But at the very moment, Moses, the primary author, was preaching this book to them. Remember, it's, it's a collection more or less of three sermons. And Moses is about to die and his successor Joshua will soon command Israel to cross the Jordan River and take possession of the land of Canaan. And the Israelites, as Caleb reminded us last week when he preached from the end of chapter 1, they failed the test the first time they approached the land. 38 years earlier, they, they, they saw the, the strength of the cities, they saw the ferocity of the armies, and they gave in to fear. They refused to obey the Lord. And, and Moses, 38 years later, through these sermons, is preparing them for round two. So what does he do? Well, first he reminds them, we saw this last week, what they must not do, right? By recounting the saga of their unbelief 38 years ago. But he also points them to what they should do Instead, and that's where this chapter comes in. They need to rest in God's power to provide. They need to rest in his power to provide. What? Why? Why could they do that? Why, why was Moses calling them to that, summoning them to do that? Because God is utterly sovereign over the affairs of men. That's why, Israel, rest in God's power to provide. 
because he is utterly sovereign over the affairs of men. And I think we need the exact same exhortation today, friends. Exact same. We, we need to remember the sovereign authority of God. Hear this. Not so we can just check some kind of theological or reformed box. Okay? But so we can, we can remember why is it good and right and fitting and necessary to lean the weight of our life on the Lord. Who holds your past and your present and your future in, in his hands. Israel needed to trust him. We need to trust him. And Moses points out several expressions of God's sovereignty in this passage that remind us why we should trust him. Here's the first. Why trust Yahweh? Because God's sovereignty is expressed through the persistence of his grace. His sovereignty is expressed. It, it gets legs, shows up through the persistence of his grace. After Israel refused to enter the promised land, the Lord sent her into the wilderness. Deuteronomy 1.40. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. What was that? It was an act of divine discipline. Right? A, a direct result of her disobedience. And Moses' observation in chapter 2, verse 1, look there, that she went in the direction of the Red Sea is insightful. That the wilderness was not, in other words, a, a step forward in embracing the joy and freedom of God's revealed will for her life. It was a step backward towards slavery in Egypt. Sin always works that way, doesn't it? It promises joy in life, but it gives you a wilderness. For many days, verse 1 says, she traveled around Mount Seir in the wilderness, scorching heat by day, brutal cold by night, but blowing sand as far as the eye could see. It, it was a literal desert. And we're not talking weeks. We're talking decades in a desert. The consequences of sin, of disobeying the Lord, are real, friends. Even in this life, there are rich blessings for doing life God's way. And painful sorrows when we refuse. It's true back then, true today. But eventually the Lord says to Moses, verse 3, You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. So yes, they're experiencing the consequences of their sin. But notice this, they never escaped God's watchful eye. Do you see that? He, he knew exactly how long they had been in the wilderness. And even in the wilderness, God continued to guide and speak to Israel through the gift of his word. When, when you're experiencing, when we're experiencing the consequences of our own sin, 
or our own foolish choices. How do you think about God? In that moment, how do you imagine God? We, I, we, we tend to think, I've noticed, that, that either God has left the building, so to speak, or we kicked him out through our disobedience, right? I had my chance and I blew it. Now, now I, I guess I'll have to cobble together a few good deeds <laughs> or, or assemble a little repentance resume <laughs> and wait for him to show up again. What I love about the Lord speaking in verse 3 is it reminds us that even in the wilderness, God is faithful to speak to his people. Through the pages of his word, you realize. Through his commands, through his instruction. Friend, do not say to yourself, I'll get back to reading my Bible after I turn my life around. No. No, we need God's word more, not less, in seasons of divine discipline. When, when we're prone to just throw in the towel, right? That, that, that's when God delights to speak. To do verse 3 in your life. To guide, to orient, to comfort you through his word. Just like he did for Israel. And do not think that that turn northward was just, oh, which way should we go to just get away from here? <laughs> no. Through the mountain country of Edom to the north lay the land of Canaan. promised land was northward. He isn't just giving random directions. He's saying to Israel through Moses, guys, you're still in the wilderness. You're still experiencing the consequences of your sin. And yes, you brought all of this on yourself and this could all have been avoided, but I am not done with you guys. I'm not done. I haven't forgotten my promises. I'm still going to lead you to the north. I'm not finished with you yet. Because I finished the good works I began. In verses 4 and 5, the Lord gives Israel specific instructions. Very detailed. For how she is to conduct herself as she approaches the land of Edom. Where the descendants of Esau lived. Don't, don't take advantage of them or fight with them, basically. Buy whatever food and water you need. Why? Look at verse 5. For I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You may, you may not know this, but, but in the ancient Near East, like in this time in history, that part of the world, most people believed in tribal deities. So what was that? Well, that was a particular little god who was in control and calling the shots, so they thought, within their geographic borders. So in the land of Moab, you had Chemosh, right? That's, that's where he's sovereign. Well, well, in contrast to all that, what, what does the Lord assert about himself here in verse 5? Notice, he's saying crystal clear to Israel, I'm not just God sovereign in the promised land. 
I am sovereign in Edom too. I'm, I'm in complete control of everyone and everything in every corner of the universe. The Edomites only have that land because I gave that land to them. I'm the sovereign one, Israel, who, who created all things and sustains all things and, and rules all things. Yahweh is not a tribal deity. In other words, he's king of kings and Lord of lords. What's the implication? Well, what God refuses to give, we cannot receive. Right? Don't, don't try to take Edom for yourself, Israel. Well, why not? Because I'm not giving it to you. Not even the smallest sliver. I love that. Not, not even a space big enough for your foot to fit on. What, what does that shout? That God is not just sovereign in the big picture stuff, right? He's sovereign in the, in the little things. He's in control of the details, the, the sole of your foot sized boundaries. When, when we can just so quickly forget the sweet comfort of providence, that the fact that your car won't start or your job application was denied or that idiot pulled in front of you at the yellow light and so you had to break and you couldn't eat, right? All of that. God controls those things too, my friend. I think so often we, we, we chase or we contend for stuff in this life as if through the sheer force of our will, we can get whatever we want. The money I want, the home I want, the friends, the relationship, the, the recognition. We, we push harder, we work longer. Maybe we even begin to intimidate and manipulate other people. What, what have we forgotten in all of that? that? That we are not master of our fate. God is. You, here's the point. You can try with all your might to assert your will in this universe. But it won't work. It won't work. Because you're not sovereign, friend. You, you cannot prevail against the Lord of hosts. What God refuses to give, you cannot receive. But here's the good news, okay? Lest you hear that and think, okay, so there's this cold, distant, uninvolved sovereign, a la a, a spiritual brick wall that I just have to deal with. Okay, fine, that... Whatever, Matthew. No. No, okay? The sovereign Lord expresses his power in the lives of his chosen people through the persistence of his grace. Through persistent blessing. Look at verse 7. Why, why did Israel have enough money? Enough purchasing power, so to speak. To get whatever food or water they needed in Edom. I mean, you'd think after, I don't know, 40 years in the desert, most of the good stuff might have been used up <laughs> or decayed or gone away. Why do they have purchasing power? 
For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. I mean, I, I read that and I say, say what? Like, we need an editor here, right? Like, that, that doesn't fit with the whole many days in the wilderness thing. The Lord your God has blessed you in the work of your, what's, what's up with this? I, I, thought, I thought the wilderness was a season of discipline, not a season of blessing. But, but throughout the whole experience, what, what is verse 7 saying? What did God do? He continued to care for his people. In other words, steadfast love and fatherly discipline went hand in hand. Israel is still experiencing the consequences of their sin. They're in the wilderness. And at the same time, God is just showering them with undeserved favor. Do you have a category for that? I, I think sometimes we, we think that God has kind of two modes. Why? Because we recreate God in our own image and we tend to have modes like this, right? Displeasure or favor. <laughs> Discipline or blessing. And then we kind of chop up the history of our spiritual lives into these categories. We say things like, well, well, last year was a season of discipline, but this year has been a season of real blessing. Just so grateful for that. Well, I understand what you're saying, what we're saying from a circumstantial standpoint, friend. But, but remember two things, okay? First, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Don't create a false dichotomy. But second, here's the main point here. God delights to lavish his steadfast love on his people. Even when we are experiencing the consequences of our sin. Do you see that? It wasn't now discipline, now steadfast love. Oh, now a little more discipline. (laughs) The same time. The same time. And he did it for Israel in three ways. Focus on verse 7 for just a moment. First, he kept watch over them. He knows you're going through this great wilderness, Moses says. Even the desert, he he remained the God who sees. The God who understands. He he knew the magnitude of their suffering. No no details excluded. Take take heart in that, Christian. You, You can pour out your sorrows to God, even if those very sorrows you brought on yourself. Because he knows. He's not unconcerned or unaware. You you can't escape his watchful gaze, his fatherly concern. Second, God remained with them, verse 7. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. No way. For real? I, I, I thought this was a season of discipline. I, I, I thought this was the consequences of sin. It is. And the Lord is, he's still with me. Even when Israel refused to obey, God didn't abandon them. He didn't say, okay, that was really foolish. So when you're interested in relationship with me, give me a call. Until then, I'm going to be over here. <laughs> no, he, he never left. 
He never withdrew. He's, he's a merciful and exceedingly patient father. The, the wilderness was hot. The wilderness was hard. The wilderness was painful. And guess what else it was? It was a place where God stayed right with them the entire time. Do not think, Christian, that your acts of disobedience and the consequences you suffer as a result box out the steadfast love of the Lord. He's not like that. Because if he was, well, who would be sovereign? Your sin would be. But it's not. It's never. God is. Third, finally, God provided for them. Back at verse 7. What does Moses say at the end? Basically, you've lacked nothing. (laughs) I read that, I think, hmm, I can think of a lot of things that in this wilderness I don't have. Is he lying? Is is this religious spin? what's, What's going on? No. Moses is reminding us of what the Apostle Peter says. His divine power has granted to us all things, everything we need for life and godliness. He gave them manna, food to eat. He gave them water out of rocks to drink. Deuteronomy 8 even says their clothes didn't wear out and that their feet didn't swell for 40 years. What's the point? That that when God is present, he's not just a sympathetic friend. Oh, I'm so so sorry. This is really hard. You know, me too. (laughs) No, he's this sovereign Lord who is present, but he's also providing for those who do not deserve his favor. Luke 6, 35, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Praise be to God. (laughs) That that's how he rolls. The consequences of sin are real. That's the point. The wilderness wasn't a, well, psych out, it's actually a paradise. (laughs) No. Consequences of sin are real. But, But if you are in Christ, friend, That's not the final story. Your your sin, no matter how scandalous, no, no matter if it gets you on the evening news or not, no matter if how much it leads you into the wilderness, nothing you ever do can dethrone the Holy One. He reigns. And and he he expresses that reign. He he shows up in his sovereignty through the persistence of his grace. A grace that watches and remains and provides. Here's the second expression of his sovereignty. God's sovereignty is expressed through the certainty of his judgment. Certainty of his judgment. We know from Numbers 18 that when Israel sought permission to travel through the land of Edom, the Edomites refused Verse 9, so they went, still going north, in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. That was a longer, more difficult route. And when they finally enter Moab at the brook Zered, Moses says something critically important. Look at verse 14. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years. 
until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. What what did the Lord tell Israel would happen when all her military age men, save two, refused to enter the promised land 40 years earlier? What, What did he say would happen? Deuteronomy tells us, chapter 1, verse 38, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. They, they will all die in the wilderness because of their refusal, their unwillingness to believe and obey the word of God. Imagine watching an entire generation fade away over 38 years. One after another. The desert literally filled with thousands of graves. And imagine knowing all the while that far more was at work in each one of those little humps of sand than a natural process of aging. It was an expression of the righteous judgment of God. Look at verse 15. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. To which I say, how does that square with the persistence of God's grace Back in verse 7. See? That same God? Same people? What, what am I missing here? Well, remember two things, friend. First, there's an important sense in which God deals with his people as a collective whole. So, so the sins of some impact the life experience of the entire body, both back then for Israel and in the church today. And second, there's a sense, an equal sense, in which God also deals with his people as individuals. So each one of us must must stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for our life. That was true back then, and it's still true today. And, And we have to keep both those aspects in view as we evaluate God's dealings with Israel. So so in a collective sense, did they all experience the Lord's discipline? In the form of 40 years in the wilderness? Yes. And in a collective sense, did did God's steadfast love never depart from them? Yes. But at the individual level, what happened? Well, the first generation that, that refused to obey, believe the Lord, died under the judgment of God. Save Caleb and Joshua, only the children survived. Why did they die? Why did they experience the judgment of God against them? Because they refused to believe and obey the Lord. God's ways have not 
changed. One bit. Then and now, the the smile of his favor, the joy of life in his presence, is only received through the obedience of faith. Okay, that's what it means to be a Christian, by the way. A, A Christian isn't someone who just identifies with a particular religion or grows up in a Christian family or goes to church on Sundays. A Christian is someone who turns away from sin to believe and obey the Lord. So do genuine Christians still sin? Yes. (laughs) Ask my wife, okay? But sin is no longer the direction of your life. Read 1 John, that the spiritual pattern in your life becomes the obedience of faith. And, And where the obedience of faith is present, not perfectly, but, but genuinely, you can rest in knowing that even when you sin, even when you experience the Lord's discipline as a result of your sin, God, God will continue to pour out his grace on you. Israel's collective story in verse 7 is your individual story, Christian. But what if you, like the first generation, refuse to do that? What what, what if the pattern in your life is is not the obedience of faith? What if it's unbelief? A persistent refusal to trust God's word, to to do what he says. What what if Jesus is nothing more in your heart, if you're being honest, than just an inspiring teacher or a a spiritual guru or, or someone your parents think is important? Well, hear me, friend. The wilderness filled with bodies Every one of those little bumps in the sand is a foretaste of the judgment waiting for you. This chapter is a warning. You will be called to account by God. No less than they were. And unless you choose to repent, God is not for you. He's against you. He's righteously and and justly against you. He will express his sovereign power through the certainty of his judgment in your life. That the same judgment that that fell on Egypt, right? Destroying the firstborn, drowning Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. Do Do you realize what God's saying here? That same divine judgment fell on unbelieving Israel. There were no ethnic exceptions to the righteous judgment of God. What mattered was the obedience of faith. Is it present? Is it absent? You will not be spared, friend, simply because all your neighbors think you're a good person or you grew up going to church because God knows better than that. He he knows your heart. He he sees your thoughts. He's watching you all the time. You may think you've figured this out. You found a way to hide from men, parents, 
pastors, family, you cannot hide from God, my friend. Everything you have done in secret will be revealed. Because Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And, and if, you, if you close your eyes in death, in this life, apart from trusting and obeying him, you will open your eyes and you'll realize it was too late. that your fate has been sealed. And your future is certain. And you will spend the rest of your days, all of eternity, with no end, no possibility of escape, suffering under the unrelenting wrath of God. you realize a wilderness littered with dead bodies reminds us we're not playing games on Sunday morning. We're not kidding around with all of this. With these songs and this sermon and prayers and preaching, we're not kidding around. This isn't a game. This isn't some kind of spiritual self-improvement opportunity to make you a well-rounded American. This is a matter of life and death. And I, I shudder sometimes. I was thinking about that this week, how easy it is to walk through those doors and saunter into this room and shake some hands and go right back out and have given not a thought to your eternity and your future. You just go watch football, and you haven't given the slightest consideration to the eternal realities at stake. The God we've been singing about is not a figment of the imagination of men. He is the righteous judge with whom we all must do, my friend. Young and old, men and women, rich and poor, black and white, you are accountable to him. I am accountable to him. Please don't leave this room without giving due consideration to the condition of your soul. Because whether you respond to the, to the certainty of God's judgment on account of your sin by fleeing to Jesus or not is a deadly serious matter. I plead with you as Moses pled with Israel through verse 14 and 15, please, my friend, turn to him and be saved. His sovereignty is expressed through persistent grace toward his own, but it is also expressed through certain judgment toward those who will not submit to his authority.
Finally, God's sovereignty is expressed through the gift of a dwelling place. Look at verse 18. Moses recounts the Lord's instructions to leave the land of Moab and continue going north into the territory of the Ammonites. And he basically repeats the same instruction he's given for the previous two border crossings. Look at verse 19. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I've given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. So why does the Lord, this is the big question, repeat the same command in verse 5 with the Edomites, in verse 8 with the Moabites, and in verse 19 with the Ammonites? And why does Moses bother to repeat that command in detail every time the Lord gave it? I mean, there were, read the book of Numbers. There were a lot of other things that God told Israel in the wilderness besides don't do this with Edom, don't do this with Moab, don't do this with Ammon. And Moses doesn't say all that once. He says it three times. What, what's up with that? Well, I think there are several reasons, okay? First, the repeated instruction here points to God's sovereignty over the nation points that way. He's not a disengaged creator, in other words. As as Paul says when he's preaching on Mars Hill, Acts 17, God determines the allotted periods and boundaries of our dwelling place. Moab's patron deity, Chemosh, didn't give them their land. The Lord did. The, The Edomites didn't displace the Horites on a whim. Verse 22, the Lord destroyed the Horites before them and they dispossessed them and settled in their place. From the same God is exercising the same power today. That there's not an empire on earth that, that can expand their territory apart from the sovereign will of God. What does that mean? You must remember as you're watching the evening news that power hungry men are not calling the shots on this planet. The Lord reigns. Second, the repeated instruction for all three confronts us with the specificity of the Lord's provision, the particularity of it, that the command to not conquer certain lands, not those Israel, was what? An implicit exhortation to wait for the land that God was going to provide, right? He he refused, in other words, to allow Israel to treat him as a pizza delivery guy. If you could think of it this way, you know, to just kind of Review the land menu (laughs) and choose whatever delicious bacon enveloped special they would like to order and then say, yeah, God, please, please give me that one. I I choose that. No, we we need the same exhortation. Why? Because there is a world of difference between using God to satisfy our desires and conforming our desires to God's will. Those are different. So when we pray, should we ask God to give us whatever we want? No. No, we we align our request to his will by praying what he teaches us to pray in his word. Scripture, think of it this way. Scripture is where God defines the borders, boundaries, and nature of his provision in your life. This is what a godly husband looks like. 
This is what a biblical church looks like. This is what a faithful friend looks like. This is what pleasing the Lord with your sexuality looks like. And, And having received his word, we have to humbly choose to be content with that provision, seeking to possess only what the Lord is eager to give, lest we be found opposing the Almighty. That the God who reigns over the nations, giving land to one, another land to another, had, had prepared a, a particular land for Israel. But, but what is that land, Canaan, what does it ultimately point toward? Well, it's something immeasurably greater than a region in the Middle East, friend. It points forward. It's a type of the new heavens and the new earth. That the home that Jesus is preparing even now to give his people on the day he returns. That's the place God has prepared for us, brothers and sisters. So listen, here's the connection, okay? In the same way that God called Israel to not act like Edom was their home or Moab was their home or Ammon is their home. What is Jesus calling us to do through the same word? Kingsway, friend, do not act as if this world is your home. Don't do that. America isn't a Christian's place. The nation state of Israel is not a Christian's place. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we await from it a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You, You realize so much of our discontentment in this life is rooted in demanding heaven on earth, right? The blessings of home, when of course we're not home. The Lord's provision is specific. He's preparing an exceedingly good land for you, Christian. Finally, the repeated instruction equips us to walk by faith. We'll end with this. I want you to think carefully. I know we're near the end but this requires careful thought. Notice, please notice, that the whole parenthetical remark in verses 20 to 23, look at your Bible if you have it open, is strikingly similar to the whole parenthetical remark in verse 10 through 12. And I want you to notice one phrase in particular that's in both places, okay? Who did the Moabites dispossess when God gave them their land? Look at verse 10. According to verse 10, it was the Emim, a people, what? Great and many and tall as the Anakim. The Anakim was a race of giants. Think Goliath. Who did the Ammonites dispossess when God gave them their land? The same sovereign Lord. Verse 21. It was the Zamzumim. Say that 10 times fast. (laughs) But who were they? A people great and many and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites. Do you remember what sort of fear drove the first generation of Israel into all that unbelief? What was it? Deuteronomy 128. Our brothers have made our hearts melt. The spies who came back saying, the people, Canaan, the promised land, are greater and taller than we. 
The cities are great, fortified up to heaven. And besides, hush falls on the crowd. We have seen the sons of the Anakim there. We're not going. Why why is Moses bringing them up again? 40 years later, because he wants Israel to realize God has already defeated and dispossessed the very enemy she was scared to death about. He's already done that. He did it for the Moabites. They took out the Anakim. He did it for the Ammonites. They took out the Anakim. If, If God would do that much for two pagan nations of idolaters, how much more will he do so for Israel? His chosen, redeemed people. As as you prepare to enter the land, Israel, look around, Moses says. Look at what God did for Edom. They're not even following him. Look at what God did for Moab. They don't worship him. Look at what God did for Ammon. They don't give him the time of day. Behold the sovereign power of your God, Israel. His arm's not too short. The the sovereign power that, that cared for you in the wilderness that judge the first generation is the same sovereign power that has already defeated those enemies that you fear, guys. He'll surely bring you into the land. Friends, King Jesus has done immeasurably more for us than take out a race of giants. He's defeated the enemy of sin and death through his triumph at the cross. With with that victory in view, press onward to your heavenly home. Don't don't lose heart. Rest in God's power to provide. He is able to bring you into that land. Why? Because he is sovereign over the affairs of men. Through the, the persistence of his grace, through the certainty of his judgment, your God prevails. When you consider your life when you consider your family, when you consider our church, when you consider our nation, rest in God's power to provide, my friend. Rest in his power and keep on resting in that power until the day your faith becomes sight and you get home to the good land. Let's pray. Lord, you are kind to comfort us with the promise of your persistent grace. You are kind to warn us with the reality of your certain judgment. And you are kind to point us to the good land that you've prepared for us in glory, home with you. And we pray, Father, that in all our thinking and feeling and doing this week, that 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 would be the land we live for. That would be the place we wait for. And that along the way, we wouldn't stop trusting your power to provide. Thank you for reminding us you are sovereign over the affairs of nations and you are sovereign in the details too. We love you.